Turn with me this morning, if you would, over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be looking here at the, would be considered for some of the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read the passage here. Uh, I'm not going to expound on the whole chapter and the preceding context too much, uh, but basically just deal with this particular verse this morning, if the Lord guide me. John chapter 3 and verse 16, let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you now this morning, needy and helpless. We come to you this morning knowing that if anything is to be done this morning that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has come and give us aid in our prayer aid in our preaching, aid in our singing, aid in our heartfelt worship. Lord, we need you today. You promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you will be within our midst. And so we pray, Lord, in faith that today you are with us. And we ask that you would guide us and direct us. Lord, we pray that you would open up these words this morning, that you would speak to your people, that you would bring edification to them, encouragement to them, instruction to them, Father. We pray as the Holy Spirit teaches that that uh, he will open up understanding and grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the volume of the book. It is written of him, and we're here to open up this book that you have so graciously given to us and to proclaim his name from it. Lord, we pray that the things we speak this morning will be of truth. I ask that you would help me to, uh, to preach the word faithfully, Lord, that I might not lean on my own understanding, but that the Spirit of God might give me utterance this morning. And Lord, I pray for all of your people that will be listening, that you might encourage them through it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. <laughs> John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This probably is one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture, probably the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. Probably the only other verse that would passage of Scripture that would be more Memorized in this, and probably not, but close to it would be the 23rd Psalm, or the uh, Lord's Prayer, uh, what is considered the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but, as popular as this verse is, and as widely memorized as this verse is, it is also widely misinterpreted. It is widely misapplied and doctrinally deficient 
in most cases where we hear this passage being preached. We see this passage on billboards. We see this passage on, uh, you know, flashing up in, uh, on signs and ball games and, and people have t-shirts and hats and wrist bracelets and necklaces and all kinds of stuff that would have, that has John 3.16 on here. Uh, whenever we, uh, see people handing out tracts and things, they always want to hand out the book of John and then they specifically say read the third chapter and, I always want people to go to John 3.16 and whenever we talk about the gospel, everybody always brings up John 3.16. And in our case, anytime that we decide that we are going to preach or speak or minister or discuss uh, the gospel with other people and we bring up election and we bring up, bring up predestination, uh, the first thing that everybody says is John 3.16. John 3.16. God so loved the world. So, this morning I thought we might just kind of ponder a little bit about this and see what the Bible has to say about that. Because here is the main thing. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what all the theologians of the world says. It doesn't matter what this theological group, whether they be Arminian or whether they be Calvinistic or whether they be something else in between, outside of those, more than those, less than those, it doesn't matter what theological group you find yourself in. It doesn't matter what school of thought you find yourself in. It doesn't matter how many commentaries you've read. It doesn't matter who the person is. The only thing that matters is what does God's Word say. We get our doctrine from God's Word. We don't formulate God's Word to create our doctrines. And what we've done is we have been so influenced throughout the years by man's traditions, by man's misunderstanding and misinterpreting of God's word, of plucking verses from their context, or from not taking into account all of the things that God's word says, that we have created doctrines and schools of theology that revolve around wrong thinking, wrong about wrong teaching about Christ, about salvation, about uh, God's purpose and about God and who he is and what he does and how he does it, about man and who man is and what man does and how man functions and how man uh, 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 was created and things like that. And so when we come down to these things, we need to come down to what does the word of God say. And whenever we look into God's word and we see that God's word says this, and yet it contradicts what we've always been taught. Or it contradicts what we just naturally think. Well, that doesn't seem right. Well, surely that ain't true. We should always, always, always submit to what God's Word says. If what we believe, if what we have been taught as children, or as uh, grandchildren, or as friends and family, or whatever... If what we've been taught in schools and seminaries, by commentaries, if what is being taught contradicts or doesn't line up with God's word, we don't question God's word, we don't doubt God's word and say, well, it couldn't mean that. we got to say, well, then I'm wrong. If God's word says that, then that's what it says. 
And so I say that because as we come to this passage of Scripture, there is a lot of stuff that is being said here that is taken outside of what the rest of the Bible is saying. The Bible is very clear about a lot of things, and as I've always said, if the Bible is clear in one thing, and then in another area it seems to be contradictory, but in a gray area we always interpret that gray area. We always interpret that, um, what's the term that I want to use, that uh, broad saying with a more succinct or more close uh, revealed saying, something, whatever the Bible says, if it says something in, in a concrete way, we let that determine what we see in other areas where it's maybe not so concrete. Now, a lot of people, whenever they read this passage, they equate this passage with, number one, God's universal love for every person in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So they say here that God loves everyone. You see that on billboards. God loves. God is love. And that's true. The Bible teaches that God is love. That is his character. That is who he is. That is his makeup. God is love. But just because God is love doesn't mean that God is required to love everybody. Because we also know the Bible teaches us that God is wrath. That God hates. Now a lot of people will disagree with me on that. And as a matter of fact, it may be a surprise to many for somebody to say that God hates anybody. But the scripture is very clear with that. And so whenever we come to John 3.16 and we see a phrase like, For God so loved the world... And we say, well, there you go, God loves everybody. But yet we come to other passages of scriptures that <laughs> denies that, at least that interpretation. Then we have to figure out, well, what is it talking about then? If it's not talking about everybody, then who is it talking about? See, the word world here in John 3.16 is the word cosmos in Greek. Okay? I'm not going to get into technical stuff, and I'm not going to get into a lot of stuff, but this word cosmos can mean several things. <coughs> and whenever we go to interpret words, whenever we go to find out what the meanings of these words are, we don't go to concordances, or excuse me, to dictionaries, and we don't go to uh, 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 lexicons and find out what men has defined these words as. We go and we find out how has God defined these words and how has God used these words in the context in which he used them. And so it's very easy to go and you'll see that this word behind that is cosmos. And if you look up the Greek word cosmos throughout the scriptures in the New Testament and you see everywhere that that word is used, you'll see the different ways that this word is used by God, therefore God defines the word himself. And in so doing, we find that cosmos is used in several different ways. Whenever we speak of the term world, it can mean of the earth and everything that's in it. When we talk of the world, we talk about the system of the world, the government of the world, the system of the world, the uh, understanding of the world. 
Whenever we speak of a world, of the world, we speak of a particular place within a certain region, like a known world at that time. Whenever the Bible was written, they didn't know about things over here in this part of the country. All they knew was over there in, uh, in, in that part of the world, the, the Middle East and the northern part of Africa and, and, uh, over into, into Europe a little bit. They knew that part of the world, that was the known world, but that wasn't everything, everywhere, everybody. The word world could also talk about a world of a specific kind of people. The world can speak of uh, 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 a certain group of people. So we see that this term can be um, used in several different ways. And so we have to find out, what does this say? On the, on the surface, it looks here that God loves everybody in the world. But see, when John wrote this, John also wrote in other places things that were very particular that shows us that the world that he had in mind is not the world that everybody is preaching. Now, before we get into that, let's see some concrete things and establish some things by God's word in this doctrine, so that we might be able to clearly understand and clearly be able to see, if the Spirit will give us understanding, that the fact is, is God does not love everybody. So if that's the case, if the Bible does teach that, then when we come to this passage, we can now see and know that this passage obviously isn't talking about every person head for head that's ever lived in this world. Okay? And see how I use the word world? What did I mean? This, this, this place that we live. This earth that we live in. Okay? Is, does God love everybody in this world that we live in? If so, then the Bible should be able to substantiate that. Cooperate that. But if there's other places in the scripture that says God doesn't love everybody, if there's even one person that the Bible says that God doesn't love, then this verse here does not mean that God loves everybody in all of the world. Right? Now, does that make sense? I mean, if the scriptures clearly teach that God doesn't love any people, then that means he doesn't love everybody in the world. And if that's the case, then we should quit saying that God loves everybody. And that's not a theological position for us to side with Calvinists or Arminians or whoever, Molinists that's in between that tries to balance the two. It doesn't matter what anybody says. Is that what the Bible says? And if that's what the Bible says... If every, if every other church and everybody who professes to be Christian says opposite of that, then let God be true and every man a liar. Right? If we are the only persons in the whole entire world to stand for that truth, then let us stand in the truth of God's word and let everybody else in the whole entire world, no matter how much history supports something else, it doesn't matter. History doesn't matter. And I say that, and I know people are going to cringe about that. I love history. I love reading church history. I love reading how doctrines have been held throughout the years by different groups of people and everything. But listen, just because you can trace a creed and confession back amongst a group of people 
does not mean it's true. If God's word says it, means it's true. Whatever God's word is, is true. And I know everyone will say, well, a creed and confession is all it is, is a summarization of what God's word says. No, it's man's interpretation of the summarization of some, of some of God's word. That's not God's word. A creed and confession is not God's word. God's word is true. Everything else is just perceived as truth as people understand what someone else is saying. (laughs) But only God's word is truly true. And therefore, if God's word says something, and we have 2,500 years or 4,000 years of church history that says, this is what this means, but yet that goes against what God's word teaches then who cares what that four thing they have held for four thousand years of error? And I know people have <laughs> well, you mean to tell me that you're smarter than the Westminster divines, you're smarter than the Baptist theologians of the you know sixteen hundreds, you're smarter than John Gill, you're smarter than blah blah blah, all these men, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, all these reformers, you're smarter than than them. I'm not saying I'm smarter than anybody. Number one, we don't know these things by human wisdom or understanding. We come to these understandings by spiritual teaching. And the spiritual teaching supersedes any of man's teaching. Therefore, yes, if the Spirit teaches this, then I don't care who says it. They're ignorant of that fact. They're ignorant of that truth. They have yet to be taught that truth. And so I'm not demeaning anybody. I'm just saying that's wrong. If you teach that, it's wrong. If you teach contrary to God's word, I don't care if there's 4,000 years of history to corroborate that people have believed that. Listen, there's been, ever since the 3rd and 4th century, there's been Catholic belief. And the Catholics have held to their doctrines and passed their doctrines down from generation to generation to generation. Should we listen to them because they've held that? Listen, how look how long that's held. Matter of fact, most of the things that we know today in modern church all stem from the stinking forefathers of the Catholic Church and everybody keeps calling them the the forefathers. All of our forefathers taught this. The church fathers. Number one, the Bible says call nobody your father when it pertains to stuff like this. Call nobody your father. Second of all, they were Catholic. Why are we following after what these Catholics said? (laughs) They didn't have the truth. God's church had the truth. Not false church. But anyway, not to get into all that, just because a historical line of belief is established does not mean that the truth is found there. If God's word contradicts that. And for years, ever since I was a little kid, ever since I even knew anything, I have always heard in Christian circles, whether it had been from my family or whether it had been from other churches that we have associated with or listening to TV, listening to radio, listening to anything else, I have always heard that God loves everybody. But turn with me, if you would, over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. We need to establish the fact of whether or not that statement is true according to Scripture. According to Billy Graham, it's true, but is Billy Graham telling you the truth? 
Proverbs chapter 5. Now look with me if you would. shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now, the reason I read those verses and the main reason I wanted to get to this is because the first set of verses that I read, it talks about certain deeds that God hates. God hates a lying tongue. God hates uh, those who are swift to run into mischief. God hates those who, uh, God hates uh, sowing discord among the brethren. And a lot of times people say this, and you've probably heard this expression, well, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Well, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Because they have this notion, and they have this teaching in their mind from tradition that God loves everybody from John 3.16. Well, we know that God loves everybody, so God doesn't hate the person, he just hates the sin. Okay, He loves the person, but he loves the sinner, but hates the sin. 
Well, here it's very clear. God is not talking about the exact, he's not hating the sin. He's hating the worker of that sin. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now that's pretty clear. Now we've established now that God does hate some people, right? God hates some people. So when we come to John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved the world, then obviously the world there doesn't mean everybody that has ever been in the world, because here we find, in contradiction to that statement, that God does hate some people. So we got to throw out that notion. And so when again, they're going to say, well, yeah, but that means that he hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, it says he hateth all workers of iniquity. Whenever he judges the reprobate at the end of the age, he's not going to judge their works and say, you bad works. I love them people, but those works, them are bad. No, who who is he going to throw into hell? The works or the worker? The worker. The one that he's going to throw into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the flames consume not, but yet never die out, is the worker of iniquity, not the iniquity itself. The iniquity itself comes from the worker of that iniquity. He hateth all workers of iniquity. But now someone's going to say, well, preacher, isn't everybody a sinner? So therefore, then, does God hate everybody? Well, there again is your conundrum. If it's talking about everybody everywhere in John 3.16 and everybody everywhere in uh, Psalms 5.5, then we have two extremes, right? God hates everybody and God loves everybody. So which one is true? God hateth all workers of iniquity and God loves the world. That's two extremes. God loves everybody, God hates everybody. Well, here's the thing, brethren. If you are a child of grace, if you are the, if you are the seed of Christ, you are not a child of iniquity. You are a child of grace. The ones who are the children of iniquity are the ones who are the seed of, of Satan, the child of Satan, the wicked one, those who were not elected before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones who are the workers of iniquity. Now, is the children of grace, did they work iniquity? Absolutely, just like everybody else. However, Christ has been their substitute. Christ has been their mediator. And that is what John 3.16 is all about. John 3.16 is showing that Christ has died for those people. Therefore, those people are no longer considered workers of iniquity, but recipients of God's grace. And in God's grace, God has given them a righteousness that's not their own. An obedience that they never could do on their own. Christ's obedience is their obedience. Therefore, they have obeyed the law 100%. Therefore, they are not a worker of iniquity by imputation. They have been imputed perfect obedience to God's law. Therefore, they have not broken God's law. 
Therefore, they are not a worker of iniquity. Therefore, God loves them, and he loves them not based upon works that they've done, whether good or bad, but he loved them because in his eternal purpose, he had an everlasting love set upon them as he chose them and gave them to Christ. Those are the ones that God loves. The workers of iniquity that God did not choose will stay and remain workers of iniquity and God remains hateful towards them. Now, look at Malachi chapter 1. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. This is a very familiar verse speaking of this subject. Malachi chapter 1, and if you would, look with me at verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Okay? Now, we're seeing something written that speaks of a physical thing. But when we get to Romans 9, we learn that this physical reality sheds light on the spiritual reality. Okay, God had chose Israel out of all the people of the world. At that time, God called and chose Israel as a nation for himself, as a people for himself, and he gave them the laws and the ordinances. He promised to be with them. His glory went with them. Christ was among them everywhere they went. Christ appeared to them. Christ spoke to them. Christ led them. Christ defended them. Christ fought for them. Christ was among them. And they and they alone are the ones who had this. God never sent the message of Christ, never sent the message of who he was and gave his commandments to anybody outside of Israel. They just, they weren't included. So God chose Israel for himself. And all others, he hated. He did not give that honor to. He did not give that grace to. In the spiritual reality, in Romans chapter 9, we see that whenever the Old Testament speaks of Israel as a nation, who actually was a physical nation, when it speaks of that, that that is a type of the spiritual Israel who is all the elect of God. It is the elect of God whom God has set his love upon, and all of the ordinances, all of the promises that God has promised, the inheritance of God, is promised to that people and that people alone. And Paul was very clear in Romans 9 whenever he made the distinction. Not all people who are of Israel in a natural way, a national way, a physical way, are of Israel in the spiritual way that he was talking about. Not everybody is spiritual Israel. Even though you may be a physical Israelite, that doesn't make you a spiritual Israelite. Just because you were chosen as a group of people in the type doesn't mean that you are chosen in the people in its substance. Is what Paul was saying. 
And so here we see the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. This is a, this is God speaking to his people. So here in a physical way in Malachi, but as we learn in Romans in a spiritual way, this is what God is saying to his spiritual people. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Now, we can easily go to Jeremiah 31.3, and in Jeremiah 31.3, the Bible says that God has loved us with an everlasting love. That means he's always loved us. Even before creation, he loved us. But he says here, how have I loved you, or how I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? The Israelites want to know, well, how do we know? Show us, what is it that Prove to us that you have loved us, your people. What does God say? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, why does he mean, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Well, because he's speaking to Jacob, the pe- the children of Jacob. He's, he's speaking to the lineage of Jacob here. Now, in Old Testament, the people of Jacob is also a type for the people of God, the, the elect of God. Don't get so hung up on a lot of these things and think, well, okay, well, I thought Israel was the type of God's people. Now you're saying it's Jacob. And then sometimes you say it's Joseph, or sometimes you say it's, you know, Benjamin, or this or that. Brethren, remember that these types are overlapping. They all are different, you know. They can mean, while they have different things, they mean or are speaking of the same thing. There are multiple, just like with the types of Christ. You look, Moses was a type of Christ. Joshua was a type of Christ. Abraham was a type of Christ. Jonah was a type of Christ. I mean, we see throughout the scripture there are these types. So just because now he's talking to Israel, he says in the first verse, and now he says Jacob, Jacob is Israel. But who is Jacob and Esau? Well, they were brothers, right? They were brothers. Isaac had a son, or had these two sons. And whenever they were born, they were twins. Esau was the first to come out of the womb. And if you remember, Jacob was the one who came out and he was clutching on to Esau's heel as he came out. Now, there's a whole sermon just in that, what that means. But... Jacob and Esau came out and they were twins. And the Bible says that here, look if you would, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. Jacob was the second born. Usually the inheritance, usually all the stuff from the father, whenever he would bless the children, it was the firstborn who would receive the blessing. Esau had the birthright. Esau was the one who who should have had all the promises and the inheritance that the father had to give, yet God didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob, the second one. Not the firstborn, but the secondborn. Now, I hope you're kind of seeing some of the types here. Not the first man born, which is the natural man, but the second man, who is the spiritual man, the children of promise. It was Jacob 
who was the child of promise, not Esau. Adam is the natural man, and he is not the child of promise. He is not the one to whom the inheritance and the promises are made. The promises are made to the spiritual man, the second Adam, and all who are in the second Adam. We are Jacob. The spirit of God that lives within us, that new man, is the is the substance of who Jacob is. Jacob is the second born. Not that which is first born, which is natural, but that which is second born, which is spiritual. He's the one who was to receive the promises. And Jacob was the one who God had set his love on. And as we learned in Romans chapter 9, the Bible said that God loved Jacob over Esau, and it wasn't according to anything good or bad that either one of the boys had done. Esau wasn't hated because he'd done bad, and Jacob was loved because he did good, because Jacob did as much, if not more bad, than Esau did. So the Bible said, having done neither good nor bad, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, God said, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. And here we see God says, and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So here we see Esau and all his descendants God hated. Now here, brethren, we clearly see that God hates a people and loves a people. There is some that God hates and some that God loves. You'll say, well, yeah, but it's the one that believes that God loves. So if you believe, then God will love you and you will not no longer be like Esau, but you'll be like Jacob. But that's not also, that neither is that also what the Bible teaches. He says, for God so loved the world. He so much loved this group of people that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, and that word whosoever actually isn't in the Greek, it says that the believing ones in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, we hear about that whosoever will all the time. Well, that whosoever actually is added in the English translation so that we can understand or read it more fluently because there isn't in Greek a good one-to-one translation there. So they add whosoever to make it able for us to read a little easier. But the whosoever is not there. It's the believing ones. That God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the believing ones should not perish. So who did Christ die for? The believing ones, right? So everyone will say once again, well, there you go, preacher. Jesus died, and he gives it all to the believing ones. So if you'll believe, then you'll get it. So long as somebody believes, then they'll get to be that person. And you keep saying that God doesn't want people saved, but if they'll believe, then God will save you. God does want to save you. Everybody, brethren, that's not what that's saying either. Now, why do we know that? Why do we know that? Well, because we know who the believing ones are, right? 
This right here, I agree that only the believing ones are the ones whom Christ died for. And anybody who does believe, they have everlasting life. Notice it says that he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. But he that hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. See, God is already, the ones who will not believe, God has already set condemnation upon them. And their condemnation is the fact that they will be unbelievers the rest of their life. They're condemned to that place. That's why in, in I think it's in the, the epistle of, of Peter, uh, he wrote about those false teachers whose condemnation that God had ordained. They were ordained to be condemned as false prophets, false teachers. But it says here, verse 15, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that have is a present perfect means something that they already had and continues to have. So now we're beginning to see the world here is talking about a specific group of people. It's not the ones who God hated. It's the ones who God loved. Verse 16. But the ones that he loved is not everybody, but only the believing ones. But who are the ones who are the believing ones? Because see, some may say, well, anybody that believes on Jesus, if anybody will come and just believe on him, and anybody can believe on him, if they'll just put their faith in him, they can believe on him. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Brethren, who are the ones who believe on Jesus? And if Jesus died for the believing ones... If God sent his son to die for the believing ones, and it was the believing ones whom God loves, then who are the believing ones? Well, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, a verse that God, whenever he finally taught me this verse, was a complete turnaround in my theology. was a complete uh, eye-opener to how I had been wrong and have been preaching a false gospel my whole entire life. Acts 13 and verse 48 said, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Who are the believing ones? Those who are ordained to eternal life. Didn't Jesus say, that God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? The ones who are not perishing are the ones who have everlasting life. The ones who have been ordained to eternal life are the ones who would believe. All those who were ordained to eternal life believe. The ordaining to eternal life came before the believing did. The reason for their believing is because they had been ordained to eternal life. Meaning God purposed eternal life to them. God gave them eternal life in the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. In the Son is life. In Him is life. And you have life because you are in Him. And He is in you. 
You've been given eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that life is not a life that we get here. It's a life that was out there before the foundation of the world. It's eternal. We have been given everlasting life. Why? Because we are children of Christ. He made everything after its own kind with its seed in itself. We are His seed. Therefore, the life that was in Him is the life that is in us. Not in these flesh. Not in this old man. Not in this natural man. But in that spiritual man that we were talking about. In the Jacob. In the Israel man. The second Adam man. That's who we are. That's who God loves. God loves those people. It's that world that God loved. It's that world. The world that is not of this world. Jesus said, these people that you have given me, they are not of this world. They're from another world. Where where is that other world? That other world is wherever God is. Now the Mormons are going to tell you it's from some star of, I can't remember the name of it, but there's some other planet that everybody comes from and there's other gods and blah, blah, blah. We're just some people on this God's planet. Wherever God is, that's where we came from. The Bible says that we are pilgrims. We're just passing through. This is not our home. (coughs) But yet this is the only home we've known. But it's not talking about this natural man who is of this earth earthy. He's talking about the spiritual man from heaven. Just as Christ was the spiritual man that came down out of heaven, we too are spiritual people that came down out of heaven by God, by, by a new creation. Not the old creation, but a new creation. It is those who are the ones who are ordained to eternal life. And all those who are ordained to eternal life believe. They're the only ones who will believe. They're the only ones who can believe. They're the only ones that will ever be found in that world of people. The ones of that world are the believing ones. The world of the believing ones. Now, is there other verses that might corroborate that? Well, actually, John wrote by the Holy Spirit, John 3.16, right? He wrote that down. But look in John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10 with me. It says in John chapter 10, and I'd like to start reading verse 7, but because of time, I'm going to just jump down to uh, uh, maybe starting in verse 13. It says, The hireling fleeth, because he is the hireling, and careth not for the sheep. Verse 14, I... Jesus speaking here of himself. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. I know the ones who are ordained to eternal life. I know those who are my children, my seed, my lineage, my creation. I know them and I am known of mine. That means those who know me know me. They know who I am. They know that I'm a good shepherd. And he says, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. Now, if you remember, brethren, that word knoweth there isn't just a cognitive know. I know Daniel. 
How do I know Daniel? He's been coming to our church now for a couple of years or three. That's how I know Daniel. But this word know here is means more than just I am an acquaintance with. I know that person. I know Donald Trump. But I'm not friends with him. I'm not related to him. I've never been around him, but I know him. I know who he is. This word know here, especially as it's used in the Greek, is an intimate knowledge, is an intimate relationship. He says here, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. I have an intimate knowledge, relationship with these sheep. And these sheep are known or know me, have an intimate relationship and knowledge of me. That's why they believe. They believe because they have been ordained to eternal life. And that eternal life that is in them has given them faith to believe who I am and who I said I am and what I did on their behalf. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for who? The whole world? No, he says here, I lay down my life for the sheep. So now we have a broad statement in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But now we see Jesus says, there's a world that is called my sheep, and that's who I laid down my life for. My sheep know me, and I am known of my sheep. I know them, and they know me. There's this eternal relationship. There's this eternal knowledge that has been given to them. Excuse me, not eternal knowledge. But there's this knowledge that has been given to them of this eternal relationship that they have to me. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And they say, well, the sheep are just anybody who believes. Ain't that what the Bible says? The sheep are just the anyone who believes? No, Jesus said that they believe because they are my sheep. The fact that they were already existing as sheep was the cause of their belief. So that goes along with what we said a while ago. The very fact that they were ordained before the foundation of the world to eternal life they believed. Why? What was the cause of their belief? They were ordained to eternal life. They were given eternal life. What is the cause of them believing? Because they are my sheep. My sheep believe. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Another's voice they do not follow. Why? Because they've been given eternal life. Why? Because they are mine. And those are the ones who I lay down my life for. Why? Because I have loved them with an everlasting love. God loves the world of his sheep. Now look at verse 16. He says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. So there was there was an, a divine appointment of Christ to not only bring the sheep of the Israel, Jews, but of also the Gentiles. He said, I don't just have a people here among you Jews, as you thought, but also have a people of every tribe, 
nation, language. I have people of every people group. And them I must also bring, because that was the command of my Father. That all that He giveth me, I should lose none. That all that He giveth me shall come to me. And I will raise them up at the last day. All that that the Father has given me, I'm going to die for. And everyone whom I die for gets the benefits, gets the reward, gets the inheritance. All the promises of Christ, or all the promises of God, are yea and amen in Christ. Therefore, all the promises of Christ are yea and amen to us, because we are his. He says, Another sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No man take it for, uh, from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And it's just right on the heels of him saying that, that the people said, or began to have divisions. Many of them said, he has a devil, he's mad. That's what people, whenever we start preaching the election, and we start preaching that Christ, or God doesn't love everybody, and that Christ died only for his elect, what do people start saying? That's devil's doctrine. I've heard that I don't know how many times. That's devil's doctrine. What did the people say whenever Jesus preached election just right there? He preached election. He preached predestination. And what did the people say? And many of them said, He hath the devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Yet there was others who said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open up the eyes of the mother? There are some that believed and some that thought he was a devil. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple and saw on his porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe me not. I told you that I was the Christ. And you didn't believe me. He said, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. There's that intimate knowledge. There's an intimate relationship. And they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. Who gets the eternal life? The sheep get the eternal life. Not because they believe. They believed because they were sheep. The belief came because of the sheep. So you don't get the love, you don't get the belief, you don't get the eternal life because you believe. That comes because you were already given eternal life and love by God. That is the, that is the reward, or that is the, I say a reward, that is the, the promise and the grace that has been given to you because you are His child. Now, I think that very well establishes the fact that in John 3.16, that the word world here doesn't mean everybody. It only means God's sheep. But just to solidify that, what little time we got left here, 
Let me show you that the word world is used in different ways throughout Scripture. And let's apply, let's apply the logic of those out there who believe that God loves everybody and died for everybody. And let's apply the word world as they do. World means world. All means all. Let's apply that logic to where the same word, cosmos, is used. Especially, here we're going to look at a couple of verses of Scripture. In John, used by the same person who wrote John 3.16 and John 10. But look with me, if you would, at John chapter 12. I'm going to back up so you can hear what we're, where we're at. It says, verse 14, and, when Je- and Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, the king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. Look at verse 19 now. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. Now, the Pharisees are saying, now look what's going on here. The whole world is going after this guy, Jesus. Now, if world means everybody, everywhere, has everybody went after Jesus? No. The Pharisees that are saying it are the ones not going after Jesus. The very ones that said this are not going after Jesus. So the world here didn't mean world of everybody, everywhere that has ever been. But who has gone after him? What does the word world mean? It was a word that they were using to mean, hey, look, everyone's going after him. Well, does everyone mean ever? I mean, whenever we use that phrase, well, who was it? Who was at the fellowship last Sunday? Oh man, everyone was there. You wouldn't believe it. Well, does that mean everybody in the world was there? No. Well, who was there? Everyone that was there was there. Everyone that we know, all the normal ones, all the ones of that church and those fellowships were there. That world of that people is there. Who are the ones going after him? Well, the whole world is going after him. Everybody, and they're seeing, hey, everybody's falling after this guy. Not only Jews, but Gentiles are also going after this guy. So the word world here doesn't mean everybody, right? Look over just a few pages in your Bible to chapter 14. Starting verse 16, Jesus talking about going away and the, and the sending the, sending his spirit back to them. He says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, which was him himself, Jesus, in the form of the spirit, that he may abide with you forever. 
even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now, does the world here mean everybody everywhere? Well, no, because he right here, since he said that, says that there are, you're going to receive him, you're going to... <laughs> You're going to understand and believe. You're going to be taught of him. You're going to know him. But he said the world cannot receive the spirit. Well, what world? Well, this is talking about the world outside of God's elect. Everybody outside of God's elect. So now we have the word world. That means all of God's elect. We also see the Bible uses the word world to mean everybody outside of God's elect. The world that that is not elect who does not have belief, is not going to receive him. Those who have eternal life and have been given faith and belief, they are going to receive him. There's that world, there's this world. God died for this world, but not that world. God loves this world, but not that world. Two different worlds. But you see, the Bible itself uses the word world in different ways. One last one and we'll close. Romans chapter 11. I, I intended for this verse here for two reasons. Number one, not only to show that the word world can mean uh, more than just everybody everywhere. And actually the word world here, cosmos, means an orderly creation. God's orderly creation. There are some that believe that that applies to every place that that word is used. It's talking about God's orderly creation and God restoring everybody to that orderly creation again. But here we see that God also uses the world to refer to Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And we make this argument often whenever we say that he's not only, uh, not only the savior of, uh, uh, of us, but also of the whole world. Right? Well, what does he mean there? The Savior of us. Well, he's talking to the Jews. He's not only the Savior of us Jews, but of the whole world, meaning people out of every nation, every group of people. The Gentiles. Jew and Gentile. And this is where we see that. Romans chapter 11, verse 15. He says, For if the casting away of them, being the Jews... Okay, he's talking about the Jews have been cast away by God. For if the casting away of them, the Jews, be the reconciling of the world. So he's talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God, into the gospel. The gospel going out to them, them being part of the believing ones. He said, if the casting off, off of the Jews means the reconciling of the world, meaning God has turned from the Jews and now is taking the gospel, who has only been to the Jews, now he's taking it to the Gentiles, and they too are believing upon him. Why? Because he has a sheep that is not of this fold, but is also of that fold, and these two come together to make one fold. These two come together to make one vine, branch, together. They come together to make one man, there's no division now. No wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. 
There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, no rich nor poor, no black, no white, no this or that. All God's people are one in Christ Jesus and there is no difference. So he says here, For if the casting away of the Jews be the reconciling of the Gentiles, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? So if you see here the word world here doesn't mean everybody everywhere, but it is in reference to the Gentiles. To the exclusion of the Jews. Because that's what he's doing here. The Jews have been excluded and been cast away except for the ones who are of Israel, the spiritual Israel, they've been cast away, and God has taken that away. And if you look now, the Jewish religion continues in its search for Messiah. They've rejected Christ as Messiah. They continue on in their false Judaism. And by the way, I'm going to make a brief statement here. Christianity is not a Judeo-Christian belief. Christianity is not Judeo and Christian. There is no Judeo in Christianity. Christianity is not Judaic belief. Christianity is something completely and totally different than Judaic belief. We are not a Judeo-Christian society. Okay? We don't want a Judeo-Christian society, brethren. Christianity is has Christ as the Messiah. Judaism has no Messiah yet. They denied and crucified Christ and said, we'll have no Messiah to rule over us if it's this guy. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to leave your house desolate. And that's what he's talking about. The casting away of them, the Jews, in contrast to the world, the Gentiles. The Gentiles will start be, be brought in now. And until the remainder of the Gentiles be brought in, then we'll all be together as one people of God. So the word world here does not mean everybody everywhere. It means Gentiles. So the word world can mean the world system. It can mean the world as it means all the reprobates. It can mean the earth where we live, a region of area, a specific group of people within a region of an area. It could mean people of another region outside of our area. Brethren, John 3.16 in no way, no shape, and no form teaches that God loves everybody in the world and that Jesus died for everybody in the world. He only died for those that the Father gave him and he gave them to him because he loved them. And because he loved them, he sent his only begotten son that any of those that had been given to him should not perish, <laughs> but have everlasting life. Be given faith in Christ Jesus. Come to Christ Jesus and believe upon him. And brethren, that is the gospel. That other is not the gospel because it speaks ill will of Christ. To say that God loves everybody whenever the Bible says he doesn't is a lie. To say that Christ died for everybody and he didn't is a lie. 
Not to mention to say that Christ died for everybody and yet shows hatred towards them by casting them into hell for an eternity of wrath and hatred upon them means that Christ did not succeed in coming and saving the world. So brethren, there's a lot of conundrum that those who preach universal salvation, preach universal love, universal atonement, there's a lot of problems that they have with the rest of Scripture. But let us preach what God's Word says. Is that a popular teaching? No. They're going to tell us we're doctrines of the devil. We're, you're, you're mad. You're crazy. They're going to have all these questions that, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, if they ask those, then have an answer for them. By God's Word, answer them. Not by what you feel or what you think. Don't be coerced because they're pulling at your heartstrings. Well, what about all your kids? So you're going to serve a God that may not save your kids? That's not up to us. Who God saves. And anybody he saves is only sheerly by grace. And anybody that he throws into hell, they're not going to go there undeservedly. They're going to go there deserving everything that they get. Well, they didn't get a chance. Well, God doesn't owe anybody a chance. Who art thou, O man, who repliest unto God? Why hast thou made me this way? Can anybody resist God's will? And God says, you don't have the right to even ask that because I am the potter. You are the clay. I have a certain purpose for everyone that I've made. Some for destruction. And if you're the one for destruction, you're going to complete the purpose for which I made you. Some people say, well, I don't want to serve a God like that. I don't want to serve a God that makes distinctions like that. Brethren, that's the God of the Bible, and if you don't serve Him, then you're serving somebody else, and it's not God. If you're not serving Him, then you're not being given to love the one true God. You've not been given to believe upon Christ Jesus, but another Jesus. You've not been given the gospel, you've been given a false gospel. And these lies you'll believe because you're the children of the one who is the father of all lies. Anybody have any questions or anything for you? Any questions, comments, corrections? All right, brother. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace once again. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the word of God that brings us the truth revealed in these pages we thank you for the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirit, not only that we are His, but as our teacher that these things to be true. Father, we pray for those that are outside that continue to believe the lies of the devil. Lord, we pray that you might give them understanding and that you might give them faith that they be yours. Lord, I pray even here today among these that are gathered, Lord, that they are your children that you give them faith to believe on the gospel. Believe on Christ Jesus alone as their salvation. And that they might show forth that confession of faith in Christ Jesus by being baptized. Lord, that we might add them to the church. They might be part of this fellowship, Lord. We just thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that there be any others in this town that you see fit to add to our number, Lord. May they be brought to us. May they be uh, a place where may this be a place where they find 
comfort and joy and peace in Christ Jesus through the fellowship of the gospel. Lord, we thank you. Again, we are so grateful for all that we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that we don't deserve any of this. We know we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve faith. We don't deserve forgiveness. But Father, you've given that to us. And Lord, we know that it's sheerly because you have chosen to do so and that you have that right to put that upon anybody that you desire. And Lord, we just are thankful that you've given that to us today. And may we be humbled by that. As we preach the gospel, may we not be arrogant or boastful because we know that we did not make ourselves the different. That we, like anybody else in this flesh, are children of wrath, even as others, enmity against you, sinners deserving of hell, but Father, only because of Christ Jesus as our substitute can we stand before you as your people in love. So thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.